Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 19th of May. I'm Tom Tilley, and on today's briefing, we explain what NFTs are and why someone paid over $60 million for one. At the moment, we're mostly seeing it in headlines used with these big uh, art pieces that are kind of out there. I think this idea will be something that will be used in all kinds of industries in the future. Non-fungible tokens, what are they? That is the subject of today's briefing. First, Jan Fran is back after a week off from the briefing. You were sitting by the the fire searching for sanity? Mate, I was away for a week with no internet, no television, nothing. I read three books. I sat by fires. I drank wine. I ate cheese. I've come back very, very relaxed. How's the soul? (laughs) You know, it's good. It's good. It's feeling, you know, it's feeling, it's feeling good. Rested and not swamped by the news and the, the uncertainty of this world. Ready to deliver some of it in this podcast, though? Yeah, uh, let's get swamped. Let's do it. All right, here are the headlines of today. Well, the Prime Minister has admitted that people with disabilities have been left behind in the vaccine rollout. We've got to step up uh, the performance there. There's no doubt about that. That was the Prime Minister there. The numbers here are not looking very good at all. Only 999 out of 26,000 people with a disability who receive support across Australia have been vaccinated. Um, Those figures have been confirmed by the Health Minister Greg Hunt as well. Green Senator Jordan Steele-John, who was the first person with a disability to sit in the upper house, says the government should be prioritising these vulnerable groups. The Morrison government has so far vaccinated more uh, politicians and Olympians uh, than it has disabled people. Yeah, Labor has slammed the short four, calling it a national disgrace. Yeah, meanwhile, there's a new poll published in the nine newspapers that shows there's growing hesitancy about the COVID vaccines. It says that 29% of adults say they're unlikely to get the vaccine. That's concerning, isn't it? It is. And unsurprisingly, that got worse after AstraZeneca was no longer recommended for the under 50s. And the government expressed its condolences after a second Australian resident died from COVID in India. I feel terribly sorry for their family, just like I do for any Australian family who have lost loved ones while they've been overseas. That happens quite regularly, in fact. Yeah, this is a really sad case. Um, A 47-year-old man from Sydney, Govind Kant, uh, died of the virus in a Delhi hospital. He was actually trying to get back to Australia. He's been trying to get back since mid-April. Of course, the government ban on Aussie citizens returning came in in early May, making it even more difficult for him and for others to be able to get back to Australia. Yeah, that is a concerning scenario because there's been a number of people who've been waiting on flights and then pushed back for tests that were then, you know, proven to be wrong. That's Um, right. All kinds of reasons why people aren't getting back as quick as they'd like to. Yeah, now this gentleman travelled to India last month for his mother's funeral and he had colleagues and family that had been concerned about his welfare while he was over there. Um, The federal government says that they're providing consular assistance to his relatives in India at the moment. Yeah, and still thousands of Australians stuck there. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's 9,000 Australians in India at the moment who've registered them wanting to come back to Australia. 900 of those are considered vulnerable, so either children or older people or people with um, pre-existing conditions. There's only been one repatriation flight from India to Australia that landed a few days ago in Darwin. As you said, Tom, it was half full because people had tested positive um, and they weren't allowed to board the plane. Now, some of those people 
got retested and it was tested negative. Mm. So I think there's a lot of questions as to who's doing the testing, why the indiscrepancy there that um, that needs to be sorted out, hopefully before the next flight arrives this Saturday. First responders have spoken of confronting scenes after that fatal shark attack on a surfer on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Yeah, the man was in his 50s. He was surfing near Tunkari, north of Sydney, when he was attacked yesterday morning. New South Wales ambulance officials are commended bystanders and first responders who said that they faced a very difficult scene as they tried to save the man's life on the beach. Yeah, so this is the exact spot where I was filming a story at the end of last year about shark attacks. We were actually in the boat going out and watching the uh, Department of Primary Industries staff tag and release sharks in Mm. that area. And through that story, I learned that the mid-north coast has the highest number of sharks of any part of Australia. Oh, right. I didn't know that. Well, I mean, last year was... It was a really terrible year for shark attacks. I think eight people died from shark attacks in Australia, making it the deadliest year since 1929. The UN says more than 50,000 people have been displaced from Gaza as the territory's conflict with Israel continues. Yeah, the UN's humanitarian agency, the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, says that 52,000 Palestinians have left their homes following days of Israeli airstrikes. Yeah, fighting between the Israelis and Hamas erupted again overnight after a brief lull yesterday uh, with the Gazan militants launching mortar and rocket attacks again into Israel. Yeah, meanwhile, Gaza's only lab for COVID tests is now out of operation following an Israeli airstrike. Uh, The US President Joe Biden yesterday expressed support for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Um, This was in a call that he made with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, He did stop short, though, of demanding an immediate end to the fighting, and he did say that the US still supported Israel's right to defend itself from rocket attacks. And a delivery rider was an employee and shouldn't have been sacked. That is the decision of the Fair Work Commissioner, um, who ruled that a Sydney delivery driver, Diego Franco, should be reinstated and paid lost earnings. Now, the Commission said that Mr Franco had been unfairly dismissed, that no valid reason had been given and that his dismissal was, quote unquote, harsh, unjust and unreasonable. The Transport Workers Union have welcomed the decision. That's right, but Deliveroo um, has promised to appeal the ruling, saying this didn't properly reflect the way that their business model works and how they work with drivers and riders. They treat them as contractors Mm. rather than employees. And this, I think, is the biggest sticking point in cases like this, because this isn't the first one we've seen, and I doubt it's going to be the last one. It's really that question of, are they contractors or are they employees? Because if they're employees, that means that they should be entitled to sick leave, um, certainly minimum wage, super, all of the entitlements that employees get. If they're contractors, and this is what the rideshare companies say that they are, then they're not entitled to any of that. The rideshare companies say that they are just a platform that provides a space for contractors to do their job. All right, in just a moment, Katrina Blowers jumps in as tech writer Cam Wilson explains what an NFT is, what's their connection to blockchain and crypto, and why some people like Grimes are making big money from them. Cam Wilson, I've been looking forward to hearing you try and explain this in simple language. So here you go. What is an NFT? 
so an NFT is a non-fungible token. And in that, the NF, the non-fungible part, means something that can't be endlessly replicated. And token means a digital object. So like, what does that mean in like normal person's language? Essentially, it's like a digital object that you can't uh, replicate or share as many times as you can with other digital objects. So, you know, if I send you a photo um, of an artwork, you can keep it for yourself. You can send it to as many friends as you want. And there's no way to know how many copies of it there are out there. With an NFT, it's essentially like a file that comes with a little certificate that says, you have the only one. This is the only one that exists out there. And why that is useful is because it means that, you know, unlike these other files that we send around all the time, you actually know that you have the only one and, and the scarcity of that makes it uh, valuable. So, you know, if you own an NFT of some kind of artwork or, you know, a song or something like that, you can pretty comfortably know that you're the only person out there who has that file. All right. That sounds like a pretty good explanation. You're listening to Cameron Wilson. He's the associate editor and he's a tech journalist for Crikey. So he's written on NFTs. Did that work for you, Katrina? It did. It did. So I understand it when it comes to things like, say, a song or an artwork. What else are people using NFTs for? <laughs> what, what what aren't they using it for now? It's really like, it's everything. I was just looking before we were chatting and I saw that Shaman in the US has released uh, NFT uh, toilet paper. Um, people what? are releasing NFT perfumes. Essentially, you know, these are all just digital files that people are kind of being creative with. And so when we're talking about NFTs, it's usually something that's visual. So, you know, you'll own some kind of object that you can see. But, you know, there have been artists who have released uh, music as NFTs. There's, I think even a, a movie has been released as an NFT. And to kind of ex- explain it just a little bit more, really what it is is, you know, you get this object in this little certificate that says you are the only one who has this. And to be technically correct, it's actually like a certificate that has a, a an address to where this object is stored digitally. And so you're the only one who kind of has that. So very often when you're buying an NFT, you're buying, you know, you get this object, it tells you where it is, you can you can look at it. And of course, like, you know, everyone else can look at it as well, but it really is about just like you are the person who owns it. So how does this apply to perfume, which is a tangible thing that you need to smell? Yeah, I think what they've done is they uh, they used a spectrometer to map what it is like digitally and then they are now releasing that as an NFT. So you're not out there, I don't know, putting it on your Facebook profile picture or something. It's just a way of saying that this is an object that we've managed to translate into the digital world and you know that you're the only person who can own that. Okay, so Cam, can you explain how NFTs use blockchain technology? How this kind of works is that NFTs use a kind of ledger system, a digital ledger system that means that it's a way of keeping track who owns something. The blockchain is this digital uh, ledger system that you've probably heard about. It's Mm. used for things like Bitcoin. And when you create an NFT, you have to mint it. That's what they call it. It's the, the term for, which essentially means that you are using a transaction that goes through the blockchain to kind of say that, yes, I've created this digital certificate for this object. 
object. And then this the blockchain ledger kind of keeps track of it by saying, well, you know, when you sell it to someone else, when you give it to someone else, we now know that, you know, in this in this ledger, it says that, well, you've given it to this person. So it's a way of first authenticating that this is, yes, the object that you uh, own. And then secondly, who then owns that object? Okay, so then you can trade that object on a digital marketplace. Yeah, exactly. And and the digital marketplace, I mean, they are essentially just like a version of eBay or something where, you know, you are trading this digital object. Obviously, they're set up specifically for it and they're a bit more complicated to that. I'm probably not giving them full uh, credit for it. But essentially, you know, they have these marketplaces, places that are set up to let people sell them and they are separate from the technology. They're, they're a kind of important part of how we actually, not only do we have this technology, but how do we actually use it for, for instance, artists to, to make money. So as a beginner, if I wanted to start getting into this space, where do I begin and how much money do I need? Um, it's actually not that cheap. And that's because at the moment it's using these kind of, you know, that ledger, the blockchain that I was talking about. A transaction like that um, is actually kind of surprisingly expensive. You can kind of run into a couple of hundred dollars. So at the moment for the for the majority ones, for the really legit uh, NFTs, and, and I should mention there are kind of other ways to use it, but this is, you know, the, the most popular way. It'll cost set you back a couple of hundred bucks and it also has to be done through a couple of marketplaces. And it it is still something that is, you know, anyone can do it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's super user-friendly to do at the moment. The other aspect of it, of cost, which kind of factors into it, is that the the act of these blockchain transactions, so you, you'll remember the, the things that, you know, let you either create the object or trade the object, also come with a environmental cost, um, mm-hmm. you know, to do these transactions, not to get too much into it, but, you know, um, the way that cryptocurrencies are set up to, to do transactions, there are all these computers around the world that are working and in exchange for doing work and, and you know, keeping a ledger of all these things, uh, they're using up energy to do that. And the kind of horsepower that's going into allowing these things to be sold and being traded, there is actually um, quite an environmental cost to it. Estimates vary about the impact, but I, I did see something recently that said that they, they at least one person estimated it would like to create an NFT, have the equivalent uh, carbon output of something uh, like like traveling overseas in an international flight. So, so they can be quite significant. You know, people are very optimistic about what it means for the future um, and, and, and allows, you know, artists and creatives to make money in a way that they haven't been able to before. But unfortunately, it comes with this cost that, you know, many in the communities are, are not happy about. So in your article you wrote back in February, you mentioned a cat meme that sold an <laughs> NFT version for $754,000. We were also hearing about digital artwork selling for millions, seven million in some cases. Tell us more about some of those bigger NFT sales. There's a couple of artists which are, have, have really made um, quite a lot of money out of it. I think Beeple, which is a name that sounds like someone who'd make an NFT, isn't it? <laughs> totally. Um, he, he's, a, a, I think, a crypto artist who sold many big um, artworks. I think like upwards of, of $60 million. I think that was like, you know, the wow. biggest one. So like quite a lot of money out there. They're not all quite up there. You know, I think probably the more average ones that people are buying are a couple of thousand dollars. But you're also saying, you know, all kinds of industries really lean into it as well. I was reading just last night about um, how the porn industry is using it and, and people who are doing nude <laughs> modeling or, or... Well, they're the great they innovators, are, the porn industry. Always, yeah. 
Exactly. They say they're always on the forefront of everything. You know, they found a way to kind of use it. And, and kind of interestingly, you know, um, porn creators are often chased off a lot of platforms. You know, they, they're often chased off places like Instagram and, and Facebook. And so, you know, they're actually really attracted to things like the NFT and cryptocurrency because, you know, part of it is that it's decentralized. You know, there's no one person who decides this is an NFT. You know, anyone can kind of do it. And so because that means that they can't get kicked off the platforms when, you know, Facebook decides it doesn't want uh, porn creators on there anymore. Mm. Cam, are we seeing something that will just stay out on the fringes or is this an outlier that will become mainstream? Because if you think about the evolution of digital art in the music industry, for example, we went from records, which were totally analog to CDs, which were digital, but a physical copy of a digital product. Then we moved to selling MP3s, mostly via iTunes, essentially trading digital assets there. Is this the next evolution of that? And will this become one of the main ways we trade digital files and digital artworks? So I think you're spot on. It's a really interesting trend how we went from, you know, physical objects, which, you know, you can mass produce an, an album. But if you if I give you a, a CD or, or a record, you're literally the only person who has that exact copy. And then we went to digital objects, which then kind of open up the floodgates. And, you know, you rem- people would remember there were things like Napster, which meant that, you know, if you had an MP3 of a song, mm. then anyone could have it and you could produce as many as you want. This is actually taking that trend back the other way where people can now put out objects that they know that they only have that one of. So in a way, it's kind of moving things back and and allowing something to happen that that couldn't happen before, which is we can now have a better idea of controlling digital files. And at the moment, we're mostly seeing it in headlines used with these big uh, art pieces that are kind of out there. I think this idea will be something that will be used in all kinds of industries in the future. It'll be just as normal as, you know, sending a digital file is now. Yeah, well, it just sounds like a a decentralized way of controlling your digital intellectual property. Exactly. And that's why artists have kind of gone to it. it it's, it's giving something back to them that they haven't had for a while. And, you know, there's been so many benefits of being able to spread stuff. You know, musicians can now get all their information out there in an instant and, and, and reach new audiences. But what this does is now gives people the, the option of being able to limit that. And through that limit, they can kind of create more value for themselves, which is one way that people can, you know, make more sustainable careers. Cam, you've nailed it. Yeah. I feel like I've got a better grip on this now. This was really bending my brain before. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, we explain the Israel-Gaza crisis. Listener.